Boy, that takes you back, doesn't it? Unless you're on the, the young side, in, in which case you're thinking, well, what a delightful new song. That's, that's great. There's nothing, nothing new under the sun, is there? I read that somewhere. I'm thinking of lyrics. We sang the song before that. Um, in a moment, we will be changed. In a moment, we will be changed. If you belong to the unchangeable one, God, Jesus Christ, he is going to relentlessly change you every day that you walk with him. He obligates himself to do this. It's a work of the spirit, this sanctifying work of God in his people. It's making us more like Jesus, isn't he? And because this year, I mean, think of all of the things you don't know are going to happen this year. Most stuff. What do we know? The Lord is faithful. The Lord is strong. The Lord is a refuge for his people. And the Lord will form Christ in us, right? There is a day coming, Christian, when you will see him as he is and be like him, says John the Apostle. And that brings us to a couple of phrases that we're going to run into in Matthew 5. You've had plenty of time to turn there now, right? Matthew 5. Um, we're in the, back in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're, and we're looking at phrases that we're really familiar with. Turn the other cheek. Anybody heard that one? Okay. Um, go the extra mile, right? Here's the thing. These have become colloquial. They're cultural terms as well. Uh, people without any knowledge of the Bible know the phrase, turn the other cheek, and they know the phrase, go the extra mile. Uh, in fact, they are among the most misunderstood uh, and misapplied uh, truths in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as, as those who are being sanctified as God's children, we need to know what they mean. Because Jesus gives us a picture of the kind of people he's turning us into, radically different from who we are in Adam, who we are by nature. What, what does it mean then to turn the other cheek, to, to go the extra mile? Are, are Christians really meant to be pacifists, pushovers? And if, if, if that's the case, how does that match up with all of the don't tread on me flags I see flying around in North Idaho? And that wasn't even meant to be funny. I mean, we, we need to deal with this. Because of all of the things we cannot predict, we can predict this. You are going to be insulted by somebody in 2023. So happy new year. Um, but but it, just like last year, didn't that happen to you last year? Sure it did at some level. You are going to be imposed upon by someone in 2023. Again, Happy New Year. Um, just like last year. Your sense of comfort, your sense of liberty will be infringed upon in some of the same ways this year that that happened to you last year. Um, such is life in a fallen world. 
How do you react to such things? And by react, I don't mean thinking ahead, what would you do? I mean, in the moment it occurs, how do you react? Are you growing a gospel reflex? Here's the thing. My reaction to personal insults, your your reaction to personal intrusion says much about Christ's presence in our lives. Our gospel witness this year, Hayden Bible Church, will be seen for better or for worse by our instinctive reactions when we're personally offended, when we're personally imposed upon. So let's jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 5, beginning with verse 38. Here the heart of our Savior, Jesus, who is describing for us life in his kingdom. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now again, we've just read, um, one, the words of our Savior Jesus. And we've also read words that are among the most misinterpreted and misapplied in the Sermon on the Mount. Are, are, are Christians really meant to be the kind of the peaceniks in the community, uh, the, the, the doormats, if you will, of the community? Um, we need to remember um, what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is presenting life in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus um, began his public ministry preaching. That's where you talk. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've heard this before, right? The the way into the kingdom is through repentance from sin and faith in the king, allegiance to the king. More on that later. But we don't get into the kingdom by making sure we do this and making sure we don't do that other thing. It's to do with faith in Christ. And now he says, look, kingdom people, you repenting, believing, Jesus-following people, life in the kingdom is very different from life outside the kingdom. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb in your community. And life in the kingdom demands that we have a right understanding of God's moral law. For example, we're not licentious people when it comes to the law of God. Remember that word antinomian, the against law people? We we don't care about the the Ten Commandments, the moral law. We're grace people. God doesn't really care how we live. It turns out that's, that's a false gospel. The law is God's nature communicated to his people. Nor are we legalistic people. We're probably more familiar with that rule-keeping by way of thinking we're going to earn favor with God. 
And how many of you know that legalism ultimately breeds hypocrisy? You and I can't measure up to our own standards, let alone God's. The gospel is the narrow way that, that, that leads us in, in a life that avoids those two pitfalls, legalism and license. And aren't you glad that this is all background? The sermon hasn't even started yet, not really. Um, the Jews of Jesus' day had been mistaught the moral law, uh, in particular the case law that helped them apply the Ten Commandments to their everyday lives. Uh, so in Matthew 5, we, we've been working through these six antitheses or six correctives. Jesus is um, rebuking and correcting the wrong teaching of the scribes and Pharisees when it, when it comes to the, the Mosaic law, God's, God's blueprint for life in his kingdom. And remember, Jesus has already said this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. How stunning that would have been to Jesus' first listeners on that hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, people who looked at the scribes and Pharisees and said, man, those are the most religious people there are. I mean, nobody's churchier than these guys, right? Well, theirs was a fake righteousness. It was all pretense. It was all contorting the law of God so that it was practical to them. Bending the moral law to make it work for them. And so when Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a truth, we're not meant to say, yeah, right on, that's, that's what I think. He's saying, I know you've been taught this, but you've been taught wrongly. I say to you, what was happening in this specific instance? Well, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the Old Testament guidelines for judicial proceedings, what you and I would call sentencing guidelines in, in criminal courts. They had taken those standards from God and applied them to personal relationships. Why would they do that? To justify personal retaliation. There's a part of you and a part of me that kind of likes this eye for an eye business in personal relationships. We'll come back to that too. But just try to imagine living in a society where the law is twisted to accommodate sin. I mean, that would be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that would lead to like billionaires not paying any taxes. Wouldn't that be weird if that were to happen? Can you imagine people who name God using the law to justify their own pursuit of self-interest? The reality is what? We don't have to pretend what that would be like. We, we live in such a world. The law was meant to restrain personal vengeance, not validate it, restrain it. The law was meant to prohibit vigilante justice. You know, the old Westerns that, you know, get a rope, you know, that sort of thing. Turns out that does not reflect the smile of God. 
Don't take revenge yourself. God told his people Israel back in Moses' day, go to the civil courts and let the judicial representatives ensure that any punishment handed down doesn't exceed the crime committed. Nor is it less than the crime committed. The, the principle of lex talionis, or you know, the, the law of retribution, the punishment fitting the crime. And, and you can read this case law in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, and it is absolutely fascinating to see how God really cared about the nitty-gritty details of his people's lives. He didn't give them the commandments, the moral law, and then say, well, best, best of luck with that. Sort it all out. No, he gave them really specific examples of how the law was to be applied, how, how God's heart would be demonstrated in matters of justice. Anyway, the, the law code was meant to put a fence around if you will, uh, the idea of personal vengeance. It was to stop people taking the law in their own hands. I'll give you just one quick example from Exodus 21. Um, if, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. Notice how specific this is. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Notice how formal and judicial this is. This isn't about interpersonal relationships. It's it's a code for criminal justice. Well, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, are you still listening? Again, the sermon hasn't started. This is all background. The scribes and the Pharisees had taken that code for, you know, community justice, if you will, the civil courts, uh, and applied it to individual relationships, acts of personal vengeance. They had legalized revenge. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. I'll take the law into my own hands, and, and God even says that's okay. Well, no, that is, that is not what God had said. He, in fact, he said, don't do that. And some of you might be wondering, well, what, what in the world does this have to do with us in, in 2023? Well, listen, the sinful desire for revenge is strong in all of us. In fact, it takes a work of grace to kill it off. As you and I are being made more and more like Jesus, these are some of the fragments that are falling off. This, this, this intense desire for personal revenge. In fact, it's so strong for those who are in Adam <laughs> that God told his people, hey, I want you to have cities of refuge. I, I want some place for people to run to for shelter because this personal revenge thing is just out of hand. Now, that's the corrective. What's the application? We don't have cities of refuge. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. 
And notice that Jesus is referring to a personal insult. He's not talking about somebody breaking into your home, assaulting you, stealing your stuff, you know, that sort of thing. He's talking about a public humiliation to, to slap a person, you know, to backhand somebody to the face uh, had one purpose, and that was to publicly humiliate that person. In fact, there was actually a law against that uh, in um, Jesus' day in the Roman Empire. If you, if, Empire, if you took someone to court for doing that and they were found guilty, they could be penalized a year's wages. I mean, the, the humiliation, public, publicly humiliating another person was taken very seriously. We do it today for sport, right? It was taken seriously. And, and the king says to his people, follow me when you're insulted personally. Follow my example when you are humiliated in this way. Restrain that vengeful spirit of yours. Don't seek the maximum allowed you know, retribution here. Turn the other cheek. That's the context. So as I was meditating on this passage the last couple of weeks and, and then asking the Lord um, what in the world should be said about this, Lord, because I know my own heart. Um, I came up with just four kind of diagnostic questions for myself. And I'm just going to foist them all on you since you're good enough to listen. But, but here's the first one. What, what is my reflexive response when someone insults me, even in front of other people? You know, this isn't about somebody breaking into, into my house and, and stealing my, my goods and my wiener dog and all of that. It's not, not about that. It's, about, it's just when someone insults me, humiliates me, what's my reflex? And somebody asked me before the first service a very good question. Well, what do you mean by reflex? I read that in the Pastor Graham. What are you talking about? And some of you might be thinking, well, reflexive response, that seems kind of redundant. It is. A reflex is a response. But, but here's what I mean. I don't mean the response that you can think through beforehand. I mean just what comes out. Is your natural vengeful spirit, the first responder to an assault on your dignity. And we can even give like a really uh, sort of trivial example. Let's just say somebody cut you off in traffic, if you can imagine such a thing. Or, or you, you meet these people who have not seen snow before and they're trying to figure out how do you drive in this stuff? That, those, that's a legitimate thing, right? But let's just say it annoys you. What's your reaction to that? Your reflex to that? You know what it should be. Are you growing a healthy gospel reflex? Do you think it's possible, friends, that the people of God will be insulted in this community this year? You think that's possible? This would have stunned Jesus' first listeners in the same way some of us right now are getting all squirmy. That's okay to get squirmy. This is so countercultural, but this is life in the kingdom. This isn't life outside the kingdom 
where everybody gets their pound of flesh and feels justified doing it. Where everybody gets their shot in if they got hit first and feels okay about it. This is life in the kingdom. These are Jesus people. And how many of you know our king does not ask his people to do that which he has not done himself for us in immeasurable ways? Listen to again to the passage we began with. 1 Peter 2, it says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That last little phrase just pierces my heart because I'm like some of you and I live day by day forgetting that people don't actually get away with stuff. It's all occurring under the good providence of God. God who alone is able to judge rightly. I'm not able to do that. Nor are you. And and we wince at it, why? Because there's a little vigilante that lives in each one of us, right? And those of you who say, no, not me, you you just prove the point. I'm embarrassed sometimes of how little it takes to get this little vigilante in me going. I'd be embarrassed to tell you. Can anybody else relate to that? John MacArthur puts it this way in his commentary on Matthew. He says, retaliation, usually with interest, is a natural extension of selfishness. In other words, this this is our default setting apart from grace. It's a work of saving and sanctifying grace that changes this. Think of what Jesus is teaching his first listeners. He's telling them, look, vengeful retribution has no place in any society. That's not God's design for community, let alone individual relationships. How much less so should there be a vengeful spirit among his people as they live in a world? Is this not a bright light for the gospel when kingdom people are totally different from that? Proverbs 20, 22 says, do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. And you think of the example of Joseph and his, his, his brothers. I mean, if, if ever there were dirtbag brothers, it was his brothers, right? And, and, and Joseph um, trusts in God and the, major understatement I realize but at the end of it all he says what hey what 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 y'all meant for evil God intended for good Romans 12:19 beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord 
Again, Jesus is teaching toward personal relationships, okay? Individuals. He's not talking about nations. He's not talking about whether we should stand up and speak the truth in a sea of, of lies. Of course we should. But personal vengeance? What does Isaiah tell us? The suffering servant, our Savior Jesus, did what? He, he, turned, he, he turned his back toward the scourgers. He, he turned his face toward those who pluck out the beard. No right to personal revenge, personal retaliation. The next one, now that was the first of four examples and I spent the most time with that, so don't be, don't be disheartened. Um, we'll move through the next three quickly. The first one is foundational for all of the rest. The second one is what? Well, it deals with personal comfort and convenience. And so if you're someone here this morning who doesn't care about personal comfort or convenience, this will be an easy one for you. The rest of us, not so much. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So here's the case of someone demanding more than what is equitable in court suing you for the shirt off your back, if you will. And again, in, in Exodus 22, uh, there's, there's a really specific guideline that God gave his people. It says, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It, it is his garment for his skin. What, what will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. How many of you are glad this morning that God is gracious? He hears the cry of the oppressed. He hears the cry of the mistreated. But how extreme is this? This is an instance back in the Sermon on the Mount when someone is being sued and they're being sued for their shirt and, and this is a culture where, just like us, they would have had at least more than one change of clothing, but only one cloak. The outer garment, the cloak, was really valuable. It might have been handed down to you from someone else in your family. You wore it all the time. It, it was your uniform at work, or it was your covering from the sun or the cold out in the fields. And it was what you slept on or under at night. It was your blanket. And the heart of God for his people is is this. Look, even when you're hard-pressed in this way, you're being sued for the shirt off your back, don't stand on your rights to personal comfort and convenience. Offer the cloak as well. That's That's a heart disposition that Jesus is teaching toward. So, second of four diagnostic questions for me. What is my reflexive response when my personal comfort and convenience are threatened? Am I going to let comfort? Am I going to let convenience? Or or, or what we we in, in our day might call financial security be subordinate to my gospel witness? And you say, well, that's just crazy. I mean, who lives this way? The king's people live this way. 
The king lived this way. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. This is our king. This is our Jesus. And, and Jesus doing this not as an example only, although it is not less than that, doing this because it's the only thing that would result in our salvation. We're only saved people because the one man who ever walked planet earth who could stand up and stand up for his rights didn't do that. Now let me just do, do you mind do you mind being encouraged for just a minute then we'll go back to the other stuff. Um I believe by God's grace that he has really used Hayden Bible Church in recent years to put this into practice. Our missions outreach, I could give different examples, but think of the the missions outreach of of this church, bringing the gospel to the community, um, bringing the gospel to the world um, is a testimony to an awful lot of people holding on loosely to personal comforts and conveniences for the sake of the gospel. That is a work of grace that we want to be very, very thankful for. And this year, we will have more opportunities to put that into practice. We'll have an opportunity this year, for example, to not only be a supplying church. That's a wonderful thing. And by God's grace, he's allowed us to be faithful in that. But, but, a, but a sending church, you know, some of our own going, well, that, that's a different matter. We'll have that opportunity. What will our gospel reflex be? Third example, verse 41. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. There, there's the go the extra mile thing, right? Many of you know the background of this. If you lived in the Roman Empire and you were not a Roman citizen, you were just one of the subjects, you know, one of the, uh, belonged to the nationality that had been overrun by the Roman Empire, um, a Roman soldier could compel you to carry his uh, armaments, you know, his backpack, I guess we would call it, and you were compelled by law to do so for a thousand paces. Roughly in a mile by by their reckoning of of distance, and just imagine, okay, as as Americans, the don't tread on me people, right? Um, what it would be like to live in an environment where somebody else had the authority to dictate what you did with your time and your energy. I mean, the little vigilante is at it again, isn't he? He's back in force. And you can, you can automatically think of all sorts of things you would say and at least want to do in response to that kind of compulsion. And keep in mind that Roman soldiers, didn't, they didn't shop at REI 
and Cabela's, you know, looking for the lightest materials possible, you know, to outfit themselves for war. These are Roman warriors. Back-bending loads, which I imagine is why they had actually legislated help for the soldiers in carrying these things. But, but anyway, this got twisted around to the point where any Roman official could ask any subject of Rome to do anything, and you'd have to do it. You could only imagine the way something like that would be abused. That is why uh, Simon of, of Cyrene, for example, was, was compelled Matthew's gospel says, was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. Let me ask you something. What is your typical reaction when your personal liberty is threatened? When your agenda, your schedule, your plans get rearranged by somebody else, I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about individuals, How do you typically react to that? Because what really gets to my heart in a passage like this, I understand that my actions say something about the gospel, and I'm being reminded in these few verses that my reactions say a lot more about the gospel's penetration into my soul, the stuff I don't have a chance to get all organized in my thoughts for. It just comes out. Jesus says, I'm going to do a work in my kingdom people that is so powerful that when they are hard-pressed, they're going to ooze grace in their culture. They're going to ooze mercy in their relationships with other people. This is the scandal of the gospel. Colossians 3, you still listening? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. I'm not my own master. I serve another master. We collectively are not our own masters. We, We belong to the master. It's very possible he'll change your agenda today, let alone this year. What is my reflexive response when my agenda and liberties are limited by others? You know, it occurs to me, it isn't so much that it would be noticed that the people of Galilee would, would, would go the mile because everybody did that. You had to. You didn't have a choice. But the fragrance of the kingdom shows up in the second mile and, and, and the third mile. You following me? What, what's not required? So when Jesus is saying, hey, don't be like everybody else, he's not talking about the first mile. That's what everybody else is doing. They have to. He's talking about the second mile, so to speak. Again, difficult for us until we realize that this is not natural to us. 
This is supernatural. This is a work of the Spirit of God to so change our relationships with other people that the fragrance of the kingdom is palpable in this way. One last example, verse 42. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Um, Let me just say, not very frequently do I get a whole bunch of um, questions in response to the weekly newsletter that goes out. Every once in a while that will happen. This past week, lots of responses and lots of questions in light of the text that we're we're wrestling with this morning. And um, one of the questions that came up repeatedly was, um, are, are we supposed to just give to everybody who asks? Seriously? I mean, somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I, I, I need a 20. Give me a 20. You look like you got a 20. And we just give? Is that the deal? When requests are so prevalent, is God really telling us, I, you need to give to all of those? No, he's not saying that at all. The people hearing Jesus' words for the first time lived in a subsistence economy, meaning um, they they worked every day for what they needed that day, subsistence. Um, They got paid daily because they they needed money daily to take care of living each day, okay? And, And for some who could not work, unable to work, begging was literally the only means of survival. And so when Jesus says, hey, give to him who asks, he's talking about the person who is in desperate straits and dire straits and has an actual need, a discernible need. Don't look the other way. Hold on loosely to God's stuff so that when God wants to move his stuff around, he's free to do so. William Hendrickson, in in his commentary on Matthew, puts it this way. He says, give, not grudgingly or gingerly, but generously. And the the, the idea here is that our our king would have us not only show kindness, but but love to show kindness. Does that make sense? To, to, To welcome the opportunity to serve him by serving someone else materially when the need is there. Now, that's the last question, but we're, we're not done just yet, but that is the last question. What is my reflexive response when asked to give sacrificially to meet someone else's need? Let's just wrestle a little bit with the practical application of this because we do live in a culture where there's an awful lot of asking. Have you noticed that? So what on earth are we to do? Does the gospel to c- compel me to give with, without concern or discernment about the need that I'm being asked to, to address? Well, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say this. He'll say, don't cast your pearls before swine. Wow, what does he mean? He's talking about the gospel witness. And if you know someone just wants you to share the gospel so that they can trash the king in public, 
He says, don't, don't throw your pearls there. Don't do that. But there is a principle in that statement that applies to giving. Sometimes giving can feel that way. Um, someone who is lazy, someone who is irresponsible, uh, someone who is unwilling to work, if, though they could, constantly asking, you know, and requiring of others. Um, that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. He's talking about actual need. In fact, Paul told the Thessalonian believers, remember there were some in Thessalonica, you're still listening, there were some in Thessalonica who were so excited about the prospect of the Lord's return, just quit their jobs. And, and people would run into them on the street, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I, I quit my job, I'm waiting for Jesus to return, but I'm going to need some money. And what, what, what was the heart of God in that situation? If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Right? There will always be those who seek to use Christians. There will always be those who seek to use the church. And so gospel benevolence is not foolish giving. And the gospel does not affirm presumptuous asking. But here's the thing. Where the rubber meets the road on this one, how many of us would admit to being a little too quick to look away in the face of actual need? Few things reveal the true depth of our Christianity so clearly as our attitude toward money. 1 John 3, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. One last quote before we end here. William, or excuse me, James Montgomery Boyce um, sums up this whole thing succinctly. And when I read this in the first service, it occurred to me that if I started with this, it would have been a shorter message. But um, (laughs) such is the providence of God, right? Um, Boyce says this, he says, the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has no right to retaliation, no right to things, no right to his own time, and no right to his money. He holds all his possessions in trust from the Lord, and he's obliged to use them as Jesus did to help others. How how do I know? In 2023, am I, am I growing this gospel reflex? It's not, it's not native to me. It's a work of grace. Well, when I can set aside my right of retaliation, my right to possessions, my right to time, control, money, when my imagined rights are subordinate to the king, subordinate to the gospel, the witness for the gospel in the community, I'm growing that gospel reflex. A couple of you asked, well, why did you have us read the whole rest of Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48? Um, And I think you asked because you were worried we were going to cover all of that and you're trying to budget your time. I'm on to you. But but here's the thing. Um, The reason for that is that this self-sacrificing, setting aside of personal rights is all to do with the work of God's love in the souls of his people. 
This is a love that spills out onto others, all right? We can't work this up ourselves. It's it's a byproduct, a fruit of the Spirit, Paul says to the Galatians. So when Jesus says in in the next verses, we'll look at these next week, but he, he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is, this is the family likeness. This is, this is the fragrance, the, the vibe of the king's people in a world that is dark with self-interest, in a world that is obsessed with personal comfort and security. The king's people shine brightly against that dark backdrop. Love for Christ empowers a radically unselfish attitude toward my rights and possessions. Again, those are just some diagnostics the Lord put on my own heart. I commend you to God's grace as you consider it yourselves. But I do know this. I do know of all of the things the Lord is going to do in the lives of his people this year. He's going to make us more like Jesus. He's going to chip off all of the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus. And this is some of the stuff that's going for his glory. Amen? For the brightness of his gospel in our community. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the the truth of your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who set aside your rights, set aside your entitlements, what you are truly worthy of, that you might condescend and take the form of one of your creatures, a man. And Lord, as a man, live this out in real time in ways that we still struggle to imagine in its, in its perfection, in its beauty. And Lord, you took that perfect life to Calvary's cross, obeying the Father, a slave to the Father for us, that we might gain entrance into your kingdom simply by receiving what you've accomplished for us. Lord, I pray that you would enable faith among us I pray that you would find us soft and shapeable as you do that work of conforming us to your image. And we pray this, Jesus, for your namesake. Amen.